Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello, and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Compliance Institute in Ireland. I'm Cathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for 20 years, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Safeguarding is a process by which regulated firms providing payment services protect customer funds. The purpose is to ensure that funds are always ring-fenced, such as in the liquidation of a firm to ensure customer funds are not commingled with operational funds and claims of customers will be met in priority. Safeguarding is subject to stringent legal requirements compelling firms not just to safeguard customers' funds, but to ensure controls around safeguarding are robust. I'm delighted to welcome as my guests today, Alison Donnelly and Russell Burke. Alison is a director in FSCOM and is a payments policy expert with in-depth knowledge and understanding of the payments regulatory landscape. Alison is a former FSA FCA e-money policy specialist and shares this insight from the regulator to client and contacts alike in her role as director in FSCOM, providing compliance advice to leading fintech companies and startups. Russell is an independent payments consultant and with a combination of extensive regulatory and strategic experience is one of Ireland's leading payment specialists with over 40 years experience with the Central Bank of Ireland and the Irish Payment Services Organisation and Bank of Ireland. Alison and Russell are here to discuss with me today the importance of robust safeguarding processes and controls, central bank expectations and future developments in safeguarding, among other talking points. Welcome to the Compliance Files podcast, Alison and Russell, and thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks very much. It's great to be on this podcast. Thanks for the invite. Uh, always enjoy talking about these uh, important matters. Okay, starting with you, Alison, could you talk us through the origins of safeguarding? When did it become a regulated activity? And could you talk us through the evolution of that regulation in Europe? Thanks, Cathy. And I'd love to talk about safeguarding. So as you said, safeguarding is all about instilling confidence because it's about making sure that customers' funds are secure. And it applies mainly to payment institutions and e-money institutions. And it came about because when the first payment service directive was brought into play, the the European Commission wanted to create open competition for non-bank players. And so they need to instill confidence in consumers. Customers could go to a bank and get their money transferred for them, a a payment service. And there's an underlying protection there that while the the bank holds the money, it's protected by the deposit guarantee scheme. But non-bank providers are not included in deposit guarantee scheme because it's not a deposit. So how do we make sure that customers feel confident in handing over their money to the non-bank players? Well, we have this safeguarding process. And so what it means is that while the funds are with the payment institution or the e-money institution, they have to be protected by what's called safeguarding. And there's a a couple of ways of doing safeguarding. You can choose to either segregate the funds and and deposit them with a um, appropriately authorized facility credit institution, or you can get them covered by a policy or guarantee. So 
as long as they're with the payment or e-money institution, they should be protected by another party. Russell, have you anything to add on that one? I suppose just to elaborate a little bit on what Alison said there. But yeah, just back to, to, to the origins of it and to Alison's point about um, the Commission trying to bring in competition to the banks. Banks have to protect cons- customers' money in different ways by having a lot of, a lot of money before you can um, get authorised as a bank. Uh, whereas the whole idea was that the firms that we would now call fintechs would have relatively less money. But um, the idea was that um, this legislation would uh, remove those barriers for competition. And because they wouldn't have the same volumes of uh, money available to them as a bank uh, to ensure full protection of those uh, customers' monies, uh, they would be safeguarded and not used, as Alison says, and co-mingled with operational money. So that is a huge difference between payment and e-money institutions versus traditional banks. Yeah, sorry. I mean, it's a great point because the the bank, when it takes the funds from the customer, can lend out, you know, that's the whole point, it's a deposit. But the payment in e-money institution is not allowed to do that. And so then we get into the place where if something were to go wrong with these newer businesses, perhaps less established because they just haven't been there for so long and, and they don't, as Russell said, have the huge capital requirements on them the funds need to be in a place where if the worst came to the worst and the, and the firm is about to go insolvent or become is insolvent that an administrator can come in and return the funds to the to the customer and that's in priority to any other creditors russell what are the main challenges or issues that you've seen being encountered in the safeguarding process that's a very interesting question kathy actually because I suppose it depends on your perspective. Obviously, I worked for a while with the regulator, so the challenges would be from the regulatory perspective, which I'll, I'll come back to. But actually, a very practical challenge for firms seeking authorization at the moment is actually getting banks to agree to provide safeguarding accounts for them. An awful lot of the applicants I would have seen would not have had the credit institution specified at the time of application because... Um, it's not that easy to get a bank to agree to open a safeguarding account for what they see as their rivals to an extent, I guess. There are risks for the bank in terms of, you know, anti-money laundering and so on by having such an account. But I'd say from, from an applicant's firm point of view, one of the big challenges is actually getting a bank to provide that safeguarding account. And in many cases, um, they might provisionally agree to provide one, but they won't actually formalise the account until the um, authorization has been granted or very close to granted that the, 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 the firm has been told central bank intends to grant that, that authorization. So in practical terms, that's the biggest challenge for an applicant firm. The challenges from the central bank point of view or from the regulator's point of view in general uh, would typically be around getting evidence that the safeguarding account, if it's to be an account, is actually opened or if it's, as Alison suggested earlier, by uh, insurance or guarantee or some other, some other uh, form like that that uh, the appropriate mechanism is in place. But I suppose on, on top of that, then, a big practical challenge for the for the regulators and, and indeed the firm is for everyone to be satisfied that the daily reconciliation process to ensure that all users' funds are safeguarded at all times, in short, are in place, uh, is probably the biggest challenge. Because further to what we were saying earlier about the, the mechanism is very different to banks, funds are safeguarded for that very reason. And a, a regulator's worst nightmare will be if something were to go wrong with a firm and the money turned out to not be safeguarded. So I suppose it's the assurances around the mechanism in place for safeguarding, the process for reconciling funds to make sure that the right amount are, are being safeguarded all the to- all times. And then I suppose on top of all that is the governance around it. Who's overseeing those processes? What mechanisms are there in place if something goes wrong to escalate and so on? They're, they're probably the, the biggest challenges as, as, as I would see them. Alison, have you anything to add to that list of challenges? Oh, I do indeed, yeah. And, and, and to the point uh, Russell's making about actually getting a bank account in the first place or a policy or guarantee for the vast majority of the sector they've opted for 
safeguarding accounts because that has been really what's only been on offer. There, more recently, there has been an insurance or policy or guarantee come into play. And so that creates a, a little bit further opportunity and a little, actually, to be honest, a little bit more flexibility for firms in how they do their safeguarding, which has been really useful. But for firms, the legislation on the face of it is relatively straightforward. I mean, when you think about it, I pay in my money. The funds are held in an account until I make the payment or I ask for the money to be moved. And it's straightforward. That's when they leave. But I always think simple whenever you talk about one fund coming in, one going out. But when you start thinking about for those businesses that do multiple payments 24 7 that's multiple payments coming in multiple payments going out then that's when the complexity begins so the processes need to be there to be able to make sure that at any point the firm can identify who owns what funds because if the administrator was to come in at any point that's exactly the questions they need to be able to answer they need to be able to pick it up very quickly and identify who owns what and that then talks about a very complex system of keeping very good and clear records that are constantly kept up to date and then we begin looking into well what funds need to be protected and what shouldn't be and again on the face of it it's very straightforward you know there's funds that belong to me because I paid them in and I want that money sent off but if there's FX to be done if there's a currency conversion well there's going to be in their margin that will then be owed to the the payment or e-money institution now when the regulators this is all tied up with insolvency legislation and, and regulators generally don't look at insolvency as such you know they're not that's not their bag that's somebody else's bag but when you start digging into it as the FCA has done then there's all kinds of questions that arise as to well is there a potential that if there's money in those safeguarding accounts that's not strictly speaking belonging to customers, does that co-mingling cause an issue when if that business was to go bust? And certainly in the UK's context, up until very recently, there hasn't been any, there hasn't been any insolvencies. And, and I think for Ireland, there just hasn't been any, you know, this is still a sort of future point. But until there's case law, you can't know how a judge will look at that, at the funds in that account and whether the fact that there's some margin in there, perhaps because at some point during that day, there was an FX conversion and fees were then owed to the business. Does that muddy the water and make the judge say, well, actually, it's not just customer funds. There's company funds in there and that those funds could be used to pay off those other creditors, in which case the whole commingling and the, the sanctity of that safeguarding account has been disrupted. And those are the issues that the FCA has tried to provide guidance on in the UK. There hasn't been that equivalent kind of consideration in Ireland. Now, that could be because actually it's all very clear cut and that, that kind of insolvency legislation is such that that issue wouldn't arise. Or is it because it just hasn't been explored to that level? And I think that is where we're going to end up at some point. That kind of decision needs to be made or, or, or considered. Uh, so what we do know is that the central bank takes this very seriously. And over the last couple of years, there's been a you know announcements of first of all in the consumer protection outlet, there was an announcement that there would be a thematic review. And now, of course, just last month, we got the letter to e-money institutions and saying that there's going to be a review of safeguarding and firms have until the end of March to attest that their safeguarding procedures are, are right and, and sufficient. And, and, you know, they're doing that, firms are doing that in, in somewhat of a, a void of guidance from the central bank, because apart from individual guidance that might have been given to firms, there's been no collective guidance publicly published 
um, guidance for firms, apart from guidance that was produced in 2011 with the implementation of the second e-money directive that hasn't been updated and it's actually quite hard to find on the central bank's website. So what do we know? We know that firms have to safeguard their funds, have to keep it segregated, they have to reconcile, but the intricacies of how that might actually look in the day-to-day -day actual genuine operation of an e-money institution, I think is still uncharted territory to a certain extent. Thanks, Alison. And I suppose we don't want to really find out in the context of, of an insolvency because of all the, the, the pain that that entails for everybody. But interesting that, you know, this is this is something that's to be explored and possibly a result of maybe our own market maturity. So looking at what does what does good or indeed very good look like in relation to a safeguarding process absent any firm guidelines from the central bank? So as I was saying, the legislation is very specific in terms of once the payment or e-money institution has the funds, they need to protect it. And it needs to be either segregated in a, in a discrete account or a safeguarding account or covered by the insurance policy or guarantee. Uh, what we also know is that the central bank definitely expects reconciliation to happen daily and that where there are hard copies, indeed, of, of, rec of records of the reconciliation should be kept. Questionable whether we can move on from hard copies and whether verified soft copies will be suitable going forward. But, but those, those are the main priorities of what needs to be kept in, in place. Okay, Russell, have you anything to add to Alison's comments on what does good look like in relation to a safeguarding process? Yeah, I suppose uh, all the stuff that we've mentioned, um, and I, I think then the governance around that. I mean, obviously, the, the, the simple... You know, the, the simple scenario that Alison mentioned, if there's a simple one bit of money in, goes into a safeguarding account, when it's demanded out, it goes again. And the central bank is happy that the, that, that the bank that it's being held with, held with is a sound one. That's all, that's all very straightforward. But in reality, there's lots of toings and froings, as Alison suggested, and there's different kind of monies floating in and out at, in different time frames. So I suppose, apart from the underlying credit institution being a sound one, and typically the central bank will want it to be within the EU, but as we mentioned earlier, sometimes it's difficult to get these accounts. But I suppose what good really looks like is when all the reconciliation processes are in place, the central bank is happy with it, but there's also probably board approved policies in relation to the selection of that bank, in relation to the procedures around safeguarding itself, that these are reviewed uh, on a regular basis by the, say, compliance function and approved by the board and so on. And generally the governance around all, all the processes there, that, 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 that probably adds to what what good looks like as i said earlier the a regulator's worst nightmare would be if something went wrong and all the monies weren't safeguarded and then to alison's point earlier about what happens if there's co-mingling of funds in that safeguarded account or for instance if it's uh, covered by insurance and the insurance amount is for more than the amount that needs to be safeguarded at any particular time how might a judge in case actually treat those situations we, we, we don't know that yet then there's there's, there's a further com possible complication is when some aspect of the safeguarding process is outsourced for instance the daily reconciliation in a situation where a the entity authorized in ireland is a subsidiary of a you know a bigger payments firm worldwide there could be some centralized reconciliation function um that the irish entity is is, is relying on and i suppose what good looks like in relation to the safeguarding there is that the ownership of that safeguarding process is still retained in the Irish entity and the oversight of that outsourcing is very much done in a, in a competent and uh, professional way in the Irish entity to, to the level where the central bank would be just as happy as it would if the reconciliation was being done in the Irish entity itself. 
So as, as we used to say in the central bank, you, you can outsource the functionality, but not the responsibility. So what good looks like is when the responsibility very much rests with the uh, with the, the the institution payments or the money institution here in Ireland and, and their controls around that. And also actually that, that brings to mind one of the things that's coming through very clearly, certainly for firms that are going through the application process at the moment, is that the access to the bank account should should be retained within the in this case applicant firms within the a regulated entity so group or outsource providers could set up payments but they shouldn't be able to authorize the funds being removed from the safeguarding account it that has to be retained within the the regulated entity yeah absolutely Alison that's 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 when I was there and I presume it's no different now the central bank and I presume any other regulator will be the same will not tolerate any circumstances where money could be taken out of a firm's safeguarding account without authorization coming from within that firm itself. So in other words, there can be no situation where a parent entity, sister entity or whatever would be able to take money out of the Irish firm's uh, safeguarding account without its uh, authorization. And that's both for its own internal procedures and the arrangements it would have with the bank providing the safeguarding account. Just one other thing worth pointing out that the Dear CEO letter makes it very clear that, uh, as well as the other points we've we've mentioned, that there's a very distinct and clear rule for the second and third line with safeguarding that um, there should be ongoing compliance monitoring and, of course, audits, internal audits to be delivered on the safeguarding robustness. So how important is governance in, in, in a safeguarding process? absolutely foundational as uh, you know hopefully uh, anybody in this in this sector will know the central bank's priority as is should be your the regulated entity's priority is that this is all properly governed and that the board takes ultimate responsibility that they, they and therefore they need to understand the obligations and the processes sufficiently to be able to provide adequate challenge to 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 be interested, to know, um, to be confirmed as regularly as necessary that, that the right amount is being safeguarded and that the processes are sufficient. And, and to go back to the point of safeguarding, it's about instilling confidence, it's about protecting customers' money. And, and I think also that lends itself to a different point as well. To, you know, Sometimes e-money and payment institutions are, are relatively peripheral to consumers' financial needs. You know, it, it's the sort of, it could be a low value gaming kind of card or, or product or service and, and, and not used day to day. But more and more, we see payment and e-money institutions becoming a sort of bank account light or, you know, it, it, they're trying to insert themselves into the uh, customer's day to day needs and requirements and, and, and genuinely meeting really useful needs. And so when you think about a customer relying on on that account if it's to the point that it is actually their day-to-day money uh, then we very clearly need to be making sure that the funds are adequately protected and indeed that if in the very unfortunate circumstance that the firm did go bust what we don't want to see is uh, customers particularly those who are already financially excluded being unable to get access to their money because it's being held up in a lengthy process to get it returned. Uh, and so one of the things that I think firms will very much have to make sure is that, that their documentation, their policy, their description of how they do things is so clear that somebody from outside can come in and pick it up and understand in order to be able to return the funds to where they need to go. And I think that will be a big issue if it were ever to arise. 
Yes, and that's safeguarding as a really critical consumer protection. And Russell, what do you see as the board's role and the board of a regulated e-money or payments firm? And what should they concern themselves in their role in discharging their oversight role as a board? Yeah, well, I suppose this ties into what we we're just talking about in relation to governance. The board effectively has to own the responsibility and the processes and procedures that, that, that uh, are around safeguarding, like uh, the directors of any firm, they have the duty to make sure everything is done correctly and, you know, from a regulatory point of view, that everything is, is complied with. So as, as, as we were talking about earlier when we were discussing what good looks like, I suppose it would be that there are regular updates uh, to the board from the various uh, lines of defence that Alison outlined there earlier, that uh, their compliance function will on a regular basis report that everything is okay and that the internal audit will confirm that and that any policies and procedures that are board approved are updated on a regular basis and <laughs> as we now know uh, the central bank itself is putting a direct responsibility on that board to provide a board certified i think is it was was the phrase but an attestation anyway that the firm's safeguarding process and so on are, are, are uh, what they should be but that, that's quite a responsibility on a board to get all that for, for the exercise to be done uh, and it to be signed off by the 31st of March, along with if there are any uh, defects in it, processes to remediate those defects. Uh, now, hopefully no firms will find any and it may not be in their interest to find any, but and hopefully there won't be any. But um, to have all that done by 31st of March is quite a challenge. So the uh, responsibility for board directors of these, you know, in some cases, relatively small firms, as Alison is alluding to there earlier, are becoming quite onerous. So, yeah, a lot, a lot lies with the board uh, in, in this particular area. Alison, you touched on earlier the three lines of defence or specifically the second and third lines of defence. Um, so what do you see as the respective roles of the, the three separate lines of defence in the safeguarding process? Certainly the first line will be the, the team that's responsible for making sure that the legislative requirements are implemented in practice. And so that's going to be the, very much the making sure the payments, the reconciliations are done regularly at, and that the, the funds in the safeguarding account are, are true to what is in, regarded as being held in the ledger. Uh, so, so that reconciliation process, that's the first line. Uh, and they, they must make, you know, the complicated policy decisions about identifying what funds truly need to be safeguarded, what funds are actually own funds and need to be removed from the safeguarding account. And all sorts of policy decisions, actually, um, one of the interesting ones might be, for instance, for those who operate with cards, when is the e-money actually spent and no longer relevant for, for safeguarding? So I always use the example of going in to, to buy a sandwich when you hand over your card. Is that, can you take away your sandwich? You can't have both e-money and the sandwich. <laughs> so the e-money should be redeemed. Is that the point when it's? taken out of the safeguarding account because then it becomes money that is owed to the shopkeeper or does it remain in there and that is then sent over to, and then when does it when's the obligation finished is it when you hand it to the merchant acquirer who hands it to the merchant or you know there's all sorts of policy decisions in there so that's the first line second line obviously is the compliance function making sure that the the ground rules that have been set down the policies and procedures are being implemented properly and having a sense check on those policies and procedures identifying and, and sort of you know their own assessment as to whether it suits it fits what the legislative requirement is and that the procedures are being implemented as set out and then the third line another independent check on that again 
confirming, assessing that the that the policies and procedures are robust and sufficient and indeed being implemented as expected. Um, and Russell, this might be something of a rhetorical question here, but you know, the central bank will be expecting a full three lines of defense treatment of this this process. It's not one where the, the lines can be blurred. Yeah, Cathy, that, that's that's actually that's true of all the, the compliance aspects of it. Yeah, blur, blurring of those lines of defense would definitely be a no-no at the central bank or indeed any other regulator, I guess. The uh, an example that might be whereby if somebody on the compliance side of things had some kind of operational responsibility or, or vice versa, uh, the, the central bank likes to see three very clear lines of defense for all aspects of it, um, a firm's processes and that. But obviously with safeguarding, it's 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 uh, particularly important. Typically, though, with safeguarding, as Alison said, line there, it's it's actually particularly if a safeguarding account has been used, it, it's relatively straightforward in that it's operational staff that um, would ensure the reconciliation, the transfers, and so on all take place um, with the compliance function. Then overseeing that to make sure it happens the way it should happen, as Alison said, and then with the internal audit, overseeing that again. So, um, but yeah, three very clear lines of defence. Very, it's particularly important in this area, but it's important in all areas. Uh, Russell. For a firm looking for an authorization in Ireland, over and above just what's spelled out in, in, in the form, what do they have to demonstrate to the central bank in their application to get the central bank comfortable with their safeguarding process? Uh, sure, sure. Well, I, I suppose <laughs> everything, I suppose, in, in, in one way, we, we've talked about mo- most of the things. Each application is different. I mean, as Alison alluded to there, your sort of utopian dream of a single payment going in be put in the safeguarding account and going back out again uh, when, when the e-money is redeemed or the payment is made would obviously leave a situation that's very uh, easy to demonstrate to the central bank how it's all happening. You have a credit institution set up, the account is open, evidence is provided, the um, reconciliation process is in place and there's the second, third lines of defence. That's, that's all very clear. But first of all, as we've said, there can be there's going to be a lot more payments than one payment at a time, and there could be different types of payments. There could be different uh, flows in both directions. If somebody's issuing and acquiring, for instance, acquirers typically get their funds uh, on a delayed basis. At what point do they have to be safeguarded, and so on? So it gets very complicated very quickly. Then, as as we've previously mentioned too, there's not just uh, safeguarding by holding it in a. Uh, bank deposit account it can also be held under what's called a comparable guarantee uh, or insurance policy uh, or indeed it can be invested in what are are called low-risk assets as well and all of those things bring further complications and I suppose the central bank will deal with each application on its own merits Uh, it will require any firm um, that is required to or sorry is required to safeguard users funds uh, to to suppose show all this show that all this works um, that, and in fact, in some cases, uh, if it's deemed to be higher than average risk, and I don't necessarily mean a high risk firm in terms of prison ratings, I just mean where there's maybe more consumers involved or high numbers, and the central bank might actually physically inspect the, the, the firm's premises or maybe be done remotely in the, in the current uh, restrictions, during the current restrictions, but it would, it would go, it, it wouldn't just accept uh, documentary evidence, if you like, of uh, the process and so on, it would actually like to see the reconciliation processes working. What happens if, for instance, there's uh, misreconciliation, you know, how quickly does it get uh, escalated? What, what is the remediation if there's a deficit or a, a, an apparent deficit? A lot of firms will... Uh, in their in their own policies, will have they make up that deficit themselves in the meantime while um, the the issue gets sorted out? When do they advise the central bank that something has gone wrong and so on? All of these things, I suppose, as I said earlier, you know, a regulator's worst nightmare in this uh, sector probably is a firm going something going wrong with a firm and the money not being safeguarded. So it's to satisfy the central bank on all accounts that every, every bit of this is is working is going to work. And as I say, there's 
for instance, if somebody's using um, the insurance methods that has been alluded to, an insurance policy is for a set amount of money. What happens if there's a sudden rush of new business and the projected volume is a you know 10%, 20% above what's expected? How quickly can the firm increase the insurance cover? Um, has it got remediations in place if it can't do it quickly enough, such as will there be a sort of backup safeguarding account already in place that they can put money into to match the difference and so on? So <laughs> unfortunately there's no easy answer to this Cathy it's it's in each case the central bank will have to be fully satisfied and confident that effectively that per the regulatory requirements all users funds will be um, protected at all times uh, by whatever safeguarding method has been selected and I think this is one of the areas where the application form isn't actually very specific or detailed in what it's asking for and actually the central bank will want a lot more information than what you look at, you know, what at first, first blush it looks like they're looking for. And so to Russell's point, it, you know, it, it's about going, it's about building that process out from the get-go so that by the time you're putting your application in, you actually genuinely know how you're going to be doing safeguarding, how you're going to do reconciliation. All those key questions have been answered and that's what makes a, a sufficient and full uh, application response. Yeah, and just to clarify on that particular point, the application form, is uh, driven by the EBA guidelines. Um, so it's not specific to the Central Bank of Ireland or the, the other regulator across Europe. And yeah, in, 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 some, in some cases, to Alison's point, they're, they're perhaps less than perfect um, in, in, in how they're uh, presented. One of the conditions of using those for the Central Bank, in our case in Ireland, uh, was that the, the request for information at the application stage was not allowed to be changed at all. So in advising firms, and helping them get their application right will we'll tell them what we think they need in there, what we think the central bank will be expecting. And at a pre-application meeting, the central bank may advise them somewhat on that. But there, there is no uh, specificity as to exactly what has to go in there to keep the central bank happy. And you can, you can be absolutely certain it'll be more than whatever's put in in the first place, no matter how comprehensive the, the submission is, because... As, as, as I say, each case is different and each case has its own challenges and so on. So it's uh, unfortunately, Cathy, no easy, easy answer. But I suppose my advice to any firms out there thinking of applying would be just to make sure it's as thorough as absolutely possible and that can, they can anticipate, if you like, any questions or challenges that a regulator might have as to why what's proposed um, will work in all circumstances. Okay, so despite what the question might be looking for, you need a good full exam answer uh, to, to, to those questions and to try and anticipate what 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 could be on, underneath those questions as well. Okay, coming to the end of the podcast and Alison, what do you see as the upcoming developments in safeguarding as an activity and in, in the regulation of safeguarding? I think that there will be a process where a lot more consideration will be given to the policy questions around safeguarding, you know, and, and I say that with a heavy heart because I think it's going to lend itself to the fact that safeguarding is a lot more complicated than it looks like in the legislation. Uh, and that's to address all the various questions that we've raised in this podcast and beyond. And I think that the central bank will, you know, ultimately have to provide more guidance and steer, which is open and available to all firms rather than, you know, the way it's approaching it at the moment, which is essentially individual guidance. I think that's, Whilst guidance can and should be welcomed, it, it, it will probably make safeguarding more complicated, but should have the effect of making it more secure so that we can be more confident 
and do exactly what we wanted to from the beginning, which is to instill confidence in consumers that when they use payment and e-money institutions, their funds are protected and they will not be at a greater risk than using uh, other payment service providers. So I, I think there is going to be a period of consideration, particularly now we have, you know, we have a, a deadline here of March for the uh, attestations to be sent to the central bank. I expect that there'll be a period of reviewing those and asking further questions and, and drilling into it in more detail. But I, I, I anticipate that through that process, there will be more questions raised and the central bank will have to provide some of the answers to them. Great. And what about you, Russell? What do you yeah, see well, as I, the upcoming I, developments in safeguarding? I, I completely agree with Alison, so I won't uh, touch on that aspect of it, but just a couple of other sort of thoughts I might have. One, one thing that's beginning to impact or potentially beginning to impact um, is negative interest rates. This has been raised by a number of firms, not just in Ireland, but across Europe, that not only do they have difficulty opening the account in the first place, but they're going to be potentially charged negative interest rates uh, on, on top of that. So straight away, there is a concern both for the firm from a profitability perspective, but also from the central bank's point of view, because even if all the money is put into the safeguarding account and reconciled correctly, if negative interest rates are being applied, uh, then you know by definition, not all the funds will be covered at all times. So a mechanism will have to be in place to address that. Now, that's not Central Bank of Ireland specific. That's obviously across the, uh, the the entire probably Western world at this stage, but certainly certainly Europe. So that, that's one of the challenges. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the alternatives to keeping the money in a credit institution is to invest it in um, low risk assets, as as referenced in the regulations. We'll get into the details of what that means now. But in the current very low interest rate environment, low risk assets tends to mean a negative interest rate as well. So again, you'd need a mechanism in place to, 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 to mitigate the fact that the balance could be going down on those things uh, rather than up. So uh, that's just a further, I suppose, um, development I, I see is, is, is will the industry across Europe or will the regu regulatory authorities across Europe address that in some shape or form? Uh, because on the other side of things, under the regulations, e-money institutions are not allowed to pay interest or, you know, give any sort of reward for the money being held there. <laughs> that means they can't pass on a negative interest rate either. So, but anyway, it's something that has to be addressed. And then I suppose the other thing I think it's quite a concern across all of Europe, not just in Ireland, what we've mentioned a couple of times during this podcast, uh, the difficulty for small firms, particularly opening safeguarding accounts. I'm hoping that this will be addressed uh, centrally across Europe and some policy or some statement will issue that will hopefully make it a little bit easier for ordinary firms to uh, open such safeguarding accounts. Because as, as, as we've, both Alice and myself have touched on a couple of times, the most straightforward method and the most common method is to have a safeguarding account with a credit institution, uh, you know, a, re a reasonable repute. And it's probably the least complex way of ensuring all the money is in place at, at the right time compared to say insurance or uh, low risk assets or guarantees of some kind. So yeah, it would be, it'd be welcome if some kind of push in the right direction on that came from the authorities in Europe as well. Thank you to Alison and Russell for sharing your insights and expertise on, on safeguarding. We've had a comprehensive tour of the importance of safeguarding, the implications for customers of getting it wrong, how to implement a robust process, as well as central bank expectations and indeed some insights on the application process and how to get that right. It's been interesting to hear you know, what you've got to say on, on future developments. So Alison is anticipating more guidance and, and 
rather less sort of bilateral advice from the central bank and russell has talked about the the dangers of, of negative interest rates and 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 how that's that's something to look out for as as something that's that's going to feed into the process and cause complications and also the the issues for smaller firms so Thank you very much um, for, for sharing your, your insights and expertise. And thank you to, to listeners for listening to this Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you find the podcast interesting and useful. And we will be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Files. This year represents a significant milestone for Compliance Institute as it marks our 20th anniversary. In November 2002, over 80 financial services professionals got together with the goal of providing a network for compliance professionals and to provide a framework for meeting the upskilling needs for what was then an emerging discipline. 20 years later, with over 3,250 members, we are the premier provider of education and professional development in compliance providing a balanced and authoritative voice on matters relating to regulatory compliance and business ethics in industry in Ireland. To find out more on what we have planned for this celebratory year, please visit our website, compliance.ie.